They are so charismatic so frequently. Halfway through researching the book, I actually had to stop interviewing the con artists because I found the same thing that happened to Crichton happening to me, where you start sympathizing with them a little too much because their stories are so cool and you kind of forget that there are lots of victims on the other side whose lives were absolutely devastated a lot of times by these by these con artists. I'm Mark Frauenfelder and this is Incredibly Interesting Authors. One day in September 1951, Dr. Joseph Sir, a surgeon lieutenant of the Royal Canadian Navy, was on board a Navy ship in waters off the coast of North Korea. This was during the height of the Korean War, so when crew members spotted a small Korean junk off in the distance, they became suspicious, especially because the boat was headed straight for them. As the junk approached, the lookouts could see someone on the deck frantically waving a flag. And when the junk got closer, they saw that men on board were more dead than alive. Their bodies had been torn apart by bullets and shrapnel. As soon as they were lifted aboard, Dr. Sir immediately began operating on them. As the only person on the ship with medical qualifications, he spent the next 48 hours performing surgery, saving the lives of 19 men. He was hailed a hero at home, and he certainly would have received honors and a promotion from the Navy if only they hadn't discovered that Dr. Sir was not a doctor and had never performed a surgical operation in his life before that day. He didn't even have a high school degree. And his name wasn't even Joseph Sir. It was Ferdinand Damera. He'd stolen the identity of the real Dr. Sir, a friend of his who knew him as Brother John Payne of the Brothers of Christian Instruction. Ferdinand de Mera had been assuming false identities his entire life. At one time or another, de Mera had impersonated a civil engineer, a sheriff's deputy, an assistant prison warden, a doctor of applied psychology, a hospital orderly, a lawyer, a childcare expert, a Benedictine monk, a Trappist monk, an editor, a cancer researcher, and a teacher. De Mera was a master con artist. Not only could he fake his way into almost any job, he could often successfully talk his way out of trouble after getting caught and then go on to rip off the very same people who had forgiven him the first time he got caught. In Maria Konnikova's new book, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time, Ferdinand de Mera stars as one of the many larger-than-life con artists presented as exemplars of master manipulators of human nature. Konnikova takes a deep dive into the psychology of con artists, as well as the psychology of the trusting people they take advantage of. It's a scary and fascinating book that reveals the methods and motives of con artists like Bernie Madoff, Jim Baker, and Lance Armstrong, and explains why everyone is vulnerable to the con artist's game. Why did you decide to write a book about con artists? Con artists aren't just criminals. They are people who often don't even commit a crime because we willingly give them everything. You know, they don't break into our house and steal something. We give it to them for free and, you know, say, you know, bless you. We are so incredibly fortunate to be doing business with you. And to me, that was just insane that we have these criminals operating in our in our midst we allow them to flourish we invite them into our homes we invite them to do to do what they do um, and so i wanted to explore that further a much simpler story is i was watching house of games um, which is one of i think it's actually 
um, David Mamet's first film, um, but I might be mistaken. It's definitely one of his earliest, and he's fascinated by con artists. And I remember watching it and thinking, this is so cool because the protagonist is this woman who's totally intelligent, has a PhD, as a psychologist, has made all this money from a best-selling book, and she falls for a con artist. And she thinks she's so savvy, and she falls for it anyway. One of the things that uh, really you focus the book on is the fact that it doesn't matter how intelligent or in, in, to some degree how skeptical you are, you you can fall for cons. Um, why is that? What is it about people that makes them so susceptible to, to falling for cons, uh, sometimes not even once, but multiple times? Yeah, I think that it's, I think it's because we all have a really ingrained, almost hardwired need for belief. We need the world to make sense. We need things to kind of happen for a reason. We don't really like ambiguity, uncertainty, shades of gray, things that don't really make sense. And unfortunately, a lot of the world doesn't make sense. But because we really want to craft narratives, we really want, you know, A to lead to B, cause to lead to effect, um, what the con artist can do is feed us those stories, feed us the things that we want to believe in. And it's a self-reinforcing cycle where we want meeting, good con artists can figure out what meaning we want, what story we want to be true, and then feed that story back back to us and we let go of our skepticism because, well, of course it's true. It's what we've always wanted to be true. That's what's so interesting. It's almost as if these con artists all attended the same con artist university or something. There's a system or a process. Do you think that con artists are natural manipulators who don't have to think about what they're doing? Or does it take conscious effort for them to to learn how to, to pull these elaborate cons? That's a really good question. I think the best ones are absolutely natural manipulators. That's not to say that they have nothing to learn. I think a lot of them go through apprenticeships. So there definitely are these schools of con artists where you have an older grifter who trains younger ones and you get better with time. And of course you have to practice. And some phenomenal con artists started out by doing pretty amateurish stuff. But I do think you need a certain predisposition to doing it if you're going to operate in the big leagues. Of course, if you're just kind of a minor scam artist who does say, you know, three card Monty and is never particularly good at it, then probably you don't need those skills quite as much. But there's something very fundamental about understanding human buttons, understanding what to press and how to press it that will allow you to manipulate them. And that is something you really have to sense. Um, You can't just read a book and say, okay, well, this is how I'm going to become a con artist, because then you're not going to be believable. And one of the hallmarks of a con artist is that they're incredibly believable. You never spot them. They don't look sleazy. They don't look like people out to get you. The people who look sleazy are the bad con artists who are going to get caught. The ones who are great, you think they're awesome, charismatic individuals. In your book, you write about so many colorful characters, unbelievable, kind of larger-than-life con artists. Can you pick one that's your favorite and, and tell me a little bit of, about him or her? Well, I don't have a favorite as such because I think a lot of them really are really just absolutely fascinating. The one who I ended up 
following the longest throughout the book um, was this guy, Ferdinand Waldo Damaro. First, I mean, I just love his name, Waldo. You know, he was an imposter. And you've got Where's Waldo written right into it. Um, but secondly, he operated not just for decades, but his cons were all over the map. And he was able to do things like convince the Canadian Navy that he was a surgeon and actually get assigned to a ship where he was the only doctor on board, lives of hundreds of soldiers in his hands. This was during the Korean War. Um, and he, that's how good he was, that he not only faked the credentials, but was able to get other doctors to kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a good physician. This, this guy will be great um, and get all of those votes of confidence. And the funny thing is he kept getting caught in all of his different frauds. And then he went on to, to do another one, which is pretty common. But the funny thing is with this particular one is that the reason he got caught is because he was successful. He didn't kill anyone, which is what you would expect would happen when someone who has, who doesn't even have a high school degree decides to um, attempt surgery. But he ended up saving the lives of a bunch of Korean uh, soldiers who'd been caught in an ambush. And the dispatches about that that showed, oh, this miracle doctor performs this wonderful stuff on the high seas, that's what what got him caught. Um, and that to me was a nice little ironic twist. And the other thing I thought that was really interesting about him was that he had enough notoriety that he had a, a biography written about him. And the author of his biography like fell for his cons over and over again. Yeah, it is insane. I mean, this guy went through so much. So Demaro, um, he took his biographer for a ride over and over. He hit him up for money for decades. Um, Crichton, uh, his biographer, ended up buying him a car, paying for him to go to seminary to get an education. Um, this guy's Crichton's identity and Crichton didn't press charges. This guy took him to court multiple times for so-called breach of contract, even though there was no breach of contract. And even still, he believed in him. And he really thought that he was a good guy every single time he was going to make good. And just watching this happen, and realizing that he was oblivious, he didn't realize how much he had fallen for this con artist, whose, whose life he chronicled. But you could see it. I, I was fortunate enough to have access to his correspondence. And you can just see it playing out over the years. And he just doesn't really realize it that he, he chooses to believe the best in this guy, even though this guy has done terrible things to him and keeps doing terrible things to him. What is it about con artists? They all kind of fit a same kind of pattern or, or template or, or use the same process. Are there some kind of underlying characteristics that they have in common? You know, that is something that I really wanted to explore. Um, and when I did some research into this and tried to find the literature that studied it, um, and also just through personal exposure to a lot of con artists as I was researching the book, um, there is there is a profile that emerges, but unfortunately it doesn't capture all con artists. So one of the things that I found was that a lot of con artists exhibit some or all of the so-called dark triad of traits, which is um, psychopathy or someone who doesn't really experience emotion normally, who doesn't experience empathy and psychopaths actually have different brains from non-psychopaths. Um, Machiavellianism or the ability to persuade people very well um, for your own personal ends. So this is someone who's a very cunning manipulator like Machiavelli's prince. 
And finally, narcissism or a really egocentric approach where you are the single most important person and you think that you have, you just deserve all of these wonderful things and that you don't have to work for them, that you really have them coming to you. And a lot of con artists have some combination of that predisposition because if you think about it, it takes it, it takes a pretty callous and also pretty crafty human being to be able to fool victims so many times over and over and not really care. Um, and I think that that sort of predisposition would definitely make someone more likely to become a con artist. That said, there are plenty of con artists who don't have all of those traits, and there are also a lot of people with those traits who don't become con artists. So you can think about it as sort of a Venn diagram where it explains part but not all of it. And the other part of it that I think is more difficult to capture is opportunity. So put some people in the right circumstances and they'll turn to con artistry, whereas other people never find themselves in those circumstances and so they end up being perfectly legitimate members of society. You had some great examples in your book. The the, uh, the doctor who accidentally discovered that he had all the, he had the brain of a psychopath but wasn't. And then... Um, uh, people who work in in Wall Street who are not natural con artists who just kind of see the environment that they're in that's like really corrupt insider trading kind of places and they just kind of go with the flow. So the brain is is part of it, but a lot of it, I think you described so well that there's like environmental triggers that can make a person a con artist. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, nature, nature never determines anything. Um, there's a quote that I use from, from the, the psychology literature in the book, which is that, you know, genes will load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. And I think that's incredibly true of psychopaths, that you could have the exact same person and have them take two different life trajectories depending on what breaks they have throughout life. Another cool thing that you had in, in uh, your book is kind of the, the stages of a con and how people are slowly roped in. Could you kind of go through the, the cycle of a, of a long con? Sure. Um, so it starts out, and I won't, I won't name all the stages by name just because you know, I, think, I think that might take too much time, but just go through kind of psychologically what happens. It starts out by a con artist really identifying your weak points. It's called, that's called the put-up, where they really try to learn what makes you tick, what types of things you want to believe, kind of where you are in your life. And then they decide, okay, you're a good victim for this type of con or not. Um, and then they start roping you in. And the first thing that they have to do is try to establish some sort of trust. And they can do that by you know, inserting themselves into your community, by becoming someone who's familiar to you, by becoming someone who is like you or you think is like you. And so they start building up a rapport. And by, at this point, they haven't asked you for anything. They're just kind of there so that you can learn to not necessarily trust them, but at least like them and relate to them. And then when you've slowly started warming up to them and letting down your guard, they that's when they deploy that story that they're going to use to catch you. And even then, they might not be asking you for anything so much as just laying out the groundwork for, oh, you know, isn't this terrible? 
I met this guy um, and he was in this awful predicament, but then he was able to get help from this phenomenal organization. Or you can do it the opposite way and say, isn't this amazing? You know, this, this person didn't have any money and then was able to invest in this wonderful scheme. And all of a sudden, you know, he's not quite a millionaire, but he can pay all his bills. All his worries are over. So whatever it is, they kind of tell you the story and get you excited because if you remember this is a story that's been crafted specifically for you and what they want to do is engage your emotions stories are incredibly good especially good stories at getting you just hot emotionally riled up and that's the state the con artist wants you in when he actually asks you for money reputation endorsement whatever it is he's asking you for because when we're in a hot state, when we're emotionally aroused, we stop thinking logically. We stop seeing red flags. We kind of start operating just based on our emotional predisposition. And so this is when we actually kind of lay out the money or whatever it is we're laying out um, to the con artist. And then the con artist just starts basically reeling us in. So now we have the hook in our mouths and he says, okay, let me, let me ask you for more and more and more. And because we've already given it to them at this point, self-deception becomes incredibly strong. It turns out that we, in a sense, are kind of the best con artists of our own minds because we, once we believe someone, we want to keep rationalizing our decisions. We don't want to admit that we made a mistake, that we trusted someone we shouldn't have trusted. We want to maintain this illusion that we are a very savvy individual. And so we start playing along with the con artist in order to kind of make the story still make sense, even when it's not making sense anymore. And this is what happens basically until the end when we have nothing left to give. And that's when the con artist just up and runs. And nine times out of ten, we won't end up reporting that we've been taken for, for a ride just because either we don't want to admit it to anyone because our reputation suffers too much or we genuinely don't realize that we've been deceived because our self-deception keeps operating to that very last moment and we dismiss it as bad luck rather than oh man i just got conned there's another part in the book that i i really enjoyed where you're talking about the, the different kinds of power that people have and how uh, people like bernie madoff use that to such great effect that he did not even have to ask anybody for money in fact people would come and beg him to take their money and he would often say no to them and play hard to get i mean he, he was like one of the greatest con artists of all time. Absolutely. And that is a very common technique that very good con artists use. It's this aura of exclusivity because the more that you can't have it, the more you want it. So this wine fraud guy who I write about as well, Rudy Kurniawan, he did the exact same thing. He had access to these incredibly rare exotic wines. By the way, they were all fakes, but he, people thought that they weren't. Um, and so all of these collectors wanted in. They wanted him to share his collection and he would say no to many of them so that it remained a very exclusive sort of club and if a con artist is able to get to that level i mean that's in some ways the pinnacle you're turning away marks because you have too many people who want to get conned by you i love i mean these these people are like storybook characters they're they're 
like I mean, they're they're horrible people, but it's just so wonderful thinking that they're like people who do this kind of stuff is like insane. Yeah, yeah, it is. And they're also, I mean, they are so charismatic so frequently. Halfway through researching the book, I actually had to stop interviewing the con artists because I found the same thing that happened to Crichton happening to me, where you start sympathizing with them a little too much because their stories are so cool and you kind of forget that there are lots of victims on the other side whose lives were absolutely devastated a lot of times by these by these con artists wow that's amazing that you can kind of feel yourself being like drawn in but you were able to to at least recognize it and get out i mean do you think that there as a way for a person to kind of um immunize themselves from from being conned Unfortunately, I wish I could say yes, it would be really wonderful. But unfortunately, I think the answer is no. Um, You can make yourself slightly less vulnerable, but you're never going to be invulnerable. And I think the best case in point um, is that there is a specific subtype of con that is devoted at con artists. So con artists conning their fellow con artists. And you'd think that if anyone were invulnerable and could spot a con coming, it would be someone who does this for a living and who tricks people for a living. But it ends up that just when it comes to ourselves, no matter how much we know theoretically, practically speaking, when it comes to our own lives, we have blinders on. And it's almost impossible to convince us that we have blinders on. And so con artists become very good marks. There's one guy I write about in the book um, who had one of the longest running and most successful schemes of the uh, 20th century with the Drake fortune. Um, He basically convinced people that uh, Sir Francis Drake had, had left a fortune and that it was going to go to all of these different people who invested with him. And while he was in England, because obviously, you know, you have to live in London at least part of the time if you're investigating Sir Francis Drake, he fell for a psychic who ended up milking him for tens of thousands of dollars. And psychics are, you know, you'd say, who are you? I mean, who falls for a psychic? Another one that I thought was interesting was the guy who sold shares in some fictional South American country. And then people actually went there, like hundreds of people. And then like two thirds of them died. I mean, the guy's like a mass murderer and he was completely nonchalant about the fact that he's responsible for the deaths of hundreds of people, and he just went right on pulling more cons. Yeah, this guy, Gregor McGregor, isn't that a great name, by the way? <laughs> um, he, after people died and after he was exposed, he did the exact same thing so that the original fraud happened in Scotland. Then he went to France and tried it again and almost sent another ship of people to their death. Um, so yeah, this, these are people who are not very nice human beings. One of the things that you, you have in the book is that there, there are people who will fall for the same con twice. How, how is that possible? I mean, they, they realize they were burned. Do they think that the second time around it's going to be any different? Well, I think a lot of times they don't realize they were burned. It's what I, what we were talking about with the self rationalization where you think it was just a matter of 
bad luck. And so you end up not learning from your experience because you don't believe that you've fallen for a scam. Instead, you think you were the victim of bad luck. And what happens with bad luck? This is the famous Gambush fallacy. It must reverse, right? Because everything has to even out. And so if you just lost a hand because lady luck wasn't with you, then you should keep playing rather than get out because that means that your next hand you'll finally have the lucky cards and you'll finally win. And so that's why repeat suckers are so incredibly frequent because people say, oh, you know, bad luck, bad bad cards, but this time this investment opportunity or whatever it is, this psychic um, is going to help me because it's my time for a lucky break. And so they do it again. Um, one of the things that I learned, I had no idea that this existed when I was researching the book, was that there are suckers lists that con artists will buy. And these are lists of people who've already fallen for a scam because it ends up that they make some of the best repeat victims. You said in the book that that you are not sure that you've ever fallen for a con before. Do you think that that's something that, I mean, is it possible that you were conned and you don't even realize it at some point in your life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I phrase it the way that I do, which is that I honestly don't know. It's not that I think I haven't been conned. It's that I have no idea because I'm just like the people I write about. And after all of the research that I did, I'm under no delusions that I would be able to spot a con. Um, I am positive that people will read this book and that some con artists will probably read this book and that I'm going to find myself the target of many a scam once it comes out because I make a very, very attractive target, right? The woman who wrote about this. <laughs> let's, 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 try to, let's try to show what a good con artist I am. I'm going to con her. So I'm pretty certain that even if I haven't been conned, I will be in the next few years. I will keep my eyes out. I'll do my best not to be. But it's hard because good con artists, you don't see them coming. Once again, if you see them coming, it's not a good con artist. One way would be, I imagine, just, just shut yourself out to anything, any new experiences and just become yeah. a very closed person and only associate with the people you already know. And But then you're like limiting yourself to so many things that it's like you have to look at the, the risk-benefit analysis. Absolutely, yes. I think there's, you lose out on a lot of experience if you just decide I'm going to be Scrooge and I'm never going to trust anyone and I'm never going to talk to anyone and I'm never going to try anything because I don't want to be conned. And it's not a very fulfilling way to live. And it's actually not a very good way to live for other reasons. There's fascinating research that shows that our level of generalized trust, so how we're, how trusting we are in general, actually correlates to a lot of really good things. So countries with higher levels of generalized trust end up being much more successful. They have higher GDPs. They are better developed. People who exhibit higher levels of trust tend to be smarter, tend to be more creative, um, not just happier, but trusting others is good. Um, and what I think we need to realize is that even though I've written a book about con artists and when you, when you do that, you think everyone's out to get you. You know, I, I lost my trust in humanity about halfway through the research process. I realized, oh, everyone is a terrible human being. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to realize that these people are still exceptions and that the vast majority of people 
are just fine and they're not out to get you and they're not out to con you. Um, and it would be foolish to close yourself off to those friendships and opportunities just because there are some rotten apples out there. So it's the risk you have to take for, for living yeah. a full life. I think, I think so. I think so. And you can do your best to try to be vigilant. Um, and one of the things that I talk about is knowing your weaknesses. So being very self-aware in the sense of knowing the things you want to be true and when things seem good and when you really want to believe something, being the most skeptical at those moments. But that's easier said than done because when we really want to believe something, it becomes very hard to convince us that we shouldn't believe it. Before I started reading the confidence game, I was like really proud of myself for thinking that I knew enough about con artists that I could protect myself against <laughs> ever being conned again. And you've completely shattered that belief. So I don't know whether to thank you or, or curse you, but I loved the book. <laughs> it was a fantastic read. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Maria. This was fun. Thank you so much, Mark. I really enjoyed it as always.